Daddy, I just don't get it. If, if he's all-powerful, then suffering shouldn't exist. I mean, if he gets in control and he loves people, then it shouldn't have happened that this guy goes into a movie theater and shoots all these people. But Frank, we all have free will. I mean, this guy made some choices, and it hurt a lot of people. This was one man exercising his free will that made something horrific happen. Whose bright idea was it for this free will stuff anyway? Don't you think an all-knowing God would have seen this one coming? The way I see it, it's still his fault that suffering exists. It's still his fault that bad things happen to these good people. And it's definitely his fault that those people died in that movie theater. Frank, this was a disturbed man. He made some choices that, again, affected a lot of people. He exercised that, and, and it created all kinds of problems. Well, who created this guy? Look, it all comes back to God. I say it's irresponsible to create something and not have more control over it. Either he's not all-powerful, or he really doesn't care about his creation. What kind of God is that? Aren't you being a little naive here? I mean, come on. There, there are consequences to people's actions. For instance, if I were to go to the top of a building and I were to fall off of it and hit the ground, should I blame God for that one? I mean, should I expect him to change the laws of gravity just for me? I don't think so. I mean, you throw a rock into a lake. You have to expect a ripple, right? So now you're getting all philosophical on me. Frank, I'm just saying that I think no matter how bad the situation appears, God is in control of it. And that his glory is going to be revealed through the consequences in ways that we may never be able to understand. Look. Patty, think about it. There's wars. There's people suffering from disease. There's poverty. There's exploitation. There's people dying at a movie theater. All for no apparent reason. And now you're telling me that God allows this to happen? Innocent people being punished so that he'll look good in the end? That doesn't add up. You're contradicting yourself. Which is it? He's all-powerful are all merciful. I mean, what does it take for this whack job to shoot a six-year-old little girl? She's up past her bedtime? No, Frank, I don't know why. I never said I knew why, and I'm not God. I'm not going to pretend to say I know why. I just believe that, again, no matter how bad this situation looks, God is in control, and, and something good is going to come out of it in the end. Look, Patty, you're my friend, but if that's God being in control, I'm definitely not interested. Look, I got a class to teach in 10 minutes. I'll talk to you later. You ever had a conversation like that? Hmm.
you're looking for that one knockdown argument to finally settle the issue of unexplained suffering. And you walk away from the table, you drive home, oh, if I'd only said this, or oh, I wish I would have remembered to say that, or, and... I think one of the most difficult conversations to have with our friends is conversations that deal with the issue of unexplained suffering, why bad things happen to good people. And one of the challenges of this question is really learning to discern where someone's coming from when they raise the issue. You see, we kind of parachuted in on like a four-minute conversation, right? Have absolutely no idea where Frank's coming from. You had assumptions on where Frank's coming from, but we don't really know. We don't, we don't, know, if, we don't really know if in this conversation Frank was having just, um, and he really wanted to know on a thinking level, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering? We don't really know that. We don't know if Frank was just trying to be stubborn, Right? Well, if God's almighty, why doesn't he create circles with corners in them? What? Well, that's just nonsense, you know? We don't, we don't know where Frank was coming from. We don't. We were only in that conversation four minutes. We don't know if the day before Frank buried his mother who had just died of bone cancer. We just don't know, all right? And so we kind of grasp for how do we respond to our friends? And you have friends who have issues with suffering, and you want to know how to respond. And I want to talk about that this morning. I have a friend who thinks God doesn't care about their suffering. Now, how do I address that? Well... I want to suggest to you that at the outset, it is more important for you to remember who you are than it is for you to know what you're going to say. It's more important for you to remember who you are, who you are in that conversation before you try to figure out what it is you're going to say. And who are you in that conversation Here's the word. It's the word ambassador. Ambassador. An authorized representative of the king. The apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's who you are. You are an authorized representative of the king. You are authorized not only to speak for the king, but you're authorized to act on behalf of the king. So it's not only your words, but your deeds and your actions will represent the one who sent you, Jesus. 
So the question then is, when it comes to this table here, how does the king want me to respond to this person regarding this issue of unexplained suffering? How does Jesus want me to speak? How does he want me to act? How does he want me to respond? Which means I need to think, okay, how would Jesus act? How would Jesus speak? What is, what is Christ's word to Frank? What, what are Christ's actions toward Frank? And the answer to that question is this. It depends. <laughs> it depends. See, it de- see if, if Frank has a problem with pain, is his problem a problem of the head? Or is it a problem of the heart? Is Frank coming to the table out of intellectual curiosity? Or is Frank coming to the table out of deep personal anguish? It's incredibly important that we establish that. That you see that. That you study the situation. That you evaluate and that you execute. That you see that. Incredibly important. And thus, our lesson for today, when it comes to our friends who are struggling with the issue of uh, unexplained suffering, an effective ambassador for Christ will discern the difference between intellectual curiosity and personal anguish, and that ambassador will respond accordingly. So you've got to nail it. You've got to make sure you understand, you see, is this person coming from a background of of intellectual curiosity, or is this person coming out of personal anguish? Now, I just have a pastor's hunch, and my pastor's hunch is this. Most conversations that you have with your friends will be out of personal anguish, And so we need to be uh, uh, experts in this. We need to grow in the skill of learning to address those who who come to this issue of unexplained suffering out of personal anguish. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how we respond to our friends who, who, who are in deep personal anguish. And I want to, I want to give you a word for that. And then I want to talk to you when your friend comes to the table out of uh, intellectual curiosity. I've got some words for that, all right? Let's talk about personal anguish. It's point one on your outline. If my friend's in personal anguish, if I'm gonna be an effective ambassador for Christ, especially to this issue of unexplained suffering, I am gonna need to respond, and the word is, with comfort, with comfort. Got to learn to give comfort. I've, I've got to be skilled at giving comfort to my friend in personal anguish. Paul tells us uh, as such in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And verse 4 says, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those. Are you hearing the ambassador speak there? See, all the ambassador has to give comes from the king. And in this case, it's comfort. 
who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So some people who struggle with unexplained suffering and they struggle with God, they struggle because they think that their problem is intellectual, but the fact of the matter is they're just plain flat hurt. They're hurt, and, 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 and so if you begin to offer an intellectual answer to someone in deep personal anguish, you're going to come across cold and uncaring and sterile, okay? Um, you know, some people in their personal anguish, their issue is not understanding suffering, it's coping with suffering. And so I've sat with people, I've sat with people who are so sick that when I, you know, I, I come into the room and their words to me are, Randy, why is God hurting me? Why is God harming me? Why is God doing this to me? And at that point, it, the appropriate response is, oh, no, 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 come on, he's not hurting you. That's not what he's doing. That's not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is comfort, compassion. It's time to hold their hand. It's time to come along beside them. It's time to say something like this. I, I, I don't know. Um, it sure feels like he's hurting you. It sure feels like he's harming you. And I wish I could hurt for you right now. I wish I could. And I want you to know something. It's okay not to have faith in God right now. It's okay. I, I've got enough faith for both of us. Have some of my faith. Let, let me carry you here with that. It's time to just give comfort and compassion. People in personal anguish don't need logic. They need love. They, they don't need philosophy. They need flowers. They don't need intellectual reasons. They need the physical presence of a spirit-filled believer. They don't need someone gifted at speaking. They need someone gifted at silence. How are you at silence? Let's see. Not bad. Not bad. Joseph Bailey was a pastor, and two of his sons died. He saw them die. And he wrote about his grief in a little booklet um, called A View from the Hearse. A View from the Hearse. He wrote, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. 
I was comforted. I hated to see him go. And sometimes the best, most helpful thing that we can do with someone who is struggling with God because of unexplained suffering, some of the best, most helpful thing we can do is just sit with them at their ground zero and be there and pay attention. And in doing so, sometimes without even speaking, we give comfort. We give comfort. And if you are here today and you are struggling with God because of unexplained suffering that's come into your life, forget about your friends, just you. And you're here grieving. Can I just encourage you by saying that your grief can be an act of worship. Your grief can be an act of worship. It's true. I'm thinking of Job chapter 1, verse 20. Job, this righteous man who experienced inexplicable suffering. Job chapter 1, verse 20 says, you know, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, it doesn't say that he grieved and then after he got over it, he worshiped. It doesn't say that. It says that his grief, his coming apart at the seams, his emotional meltdown, that was an act of worship. And why? Because, because grief says that some things just are not as they should be. Grief says something's broken. God, something's broken. And I've come to you about that. Grief, grief is about a distant memory of, of, of what the world was like before Adam and Eve disobeyed God. A world of justice, a world of mercy. And grief can be a cry of hope. Hope in the God who will put it all together and restore all in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why believers can grieve And it's different from the world because they grieve with hope and God receives that as worship. So if you're here today in grief, I just want you to know God receives your grief as worship. And may the Holy Spirit comfort you in that because that's what you need in personal anguish. All right? need an ambassador who will come and give you comfort in your grief. Okay? Well, in my journey, I've had this uh, same individual, individuals, who I've comforted them and sat with them and wept with them and been silent with them. And then, and it depends on the person, six months later, sometimes a year later, the person will come to me in my office. Randy, I'm 
really curious about this suffering thing. I mean, I, I, I really am curious about this suffering thing. I really, I really, I really want to know. I mean, I mean, okay, if God was good, why well, he'd want to make his creatures perfectly happy. And, and if God was almighty, why well, he'd be able to do whatever he wanted. But, you know, obviously the creatures aren't happy. And so, you know, either God's not good or God's not almighty or both. That got me curious. I want to investigate this. And you know what I do? They come to me and they ask that. I say, are you sure? <laughs> and I'm looking at the eyes. You know, I'm, I'm waiting. Okay, maybe there's, going to be a, maybe there's going to be an emotional moment here and a waterfall of tears and so forth. And, and I, you know, are you sure? And I say, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I'm really curious about this. And then I'll pause and I'll say, are you really sure? Yeah, yeah. And then I respond with, okay, buckle up, let's go. Because now they're really, you know, on a thinking level engaged. Okay, well, how, do we, how can we make sense of this as, as Christians? And, and, and at that point in time, what they don't need, like maybe they did need before, they don't need comfort. See, see if, you, if someone's in personal anguish and, and, and you don't give comfort, but instead you try to give you know, something for the mind, you're going to come across cold and uncaring. On the other hand, if someone comes and they, they, have some, the, they have some intellectual thinking questions about this, and all you do is just provide you know, comfort and Kleenex, you're going to come across as mushy. So what does the person need when they are intellectually curious about the problem of suffering? Here's what they need. They need sound teaching. And here are four teaching points that I would offer for you. I would begin that conversation as I had with the word liberty. Because Americans love liberty. We love the liberty to speak. We love the liberty to vote. Why, Sarah and I just hosted some friends not long ago, and they uh, were born in another country and don't have nearly the liberties that we have. And, and my, my friend said uh, to me, Randy, well, you know, I have a question. What? Why is it that Americans are so critical of their president? Why do they criticize their president? Why do they criticize the government so much? And I smiled and I said, well, because we can that's why we can't it's all right it's like you're not being a good american if you're not criticizing the government you know that's why we do that really and i put my arm around my friend and i said fan that's his name you you may criticize the president and you may criticize the government I said, but you may never, ever, ever criticize your wife. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> oh, Randy, you're such a wise man. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> oh, boy. But we, we, we it's, Americans love liberty. Can you imagine what would happen if some of our liberties were revoked? Huh? Oh, my goodness, there'd be an outcry. Now what if what if everybody was required to wear gray? Right? Just everybody had to, we would still find a way around that. We'd wear different shades of gray, polka dotted gray, pastel. We would we would 
And so, you know, because we're going to express ourselves. It's, it's, it's about liberty, and that's why. That's why when we worship here, we're dressed so diversely. We've got the Neiman Marcus look. We've got the preppy look. We've got the denim look. We've got high fashion. We've got low fashion. We've got no fashion. We're all here. <laughs> it's, a, it's part of our liberty. Li- li- uh, liberty doesn't come from the government. Liberty comes from God. And we... We have the ability to abuse our liberty. We can obey God. We can disobey God. And yes, there are consequences to the exercise of our liberty. In the Garden of Eden, our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve, had the liberty to to follow God's word or not follow God's word, to obey or to disobey. And they, they chose to disobey. And it was no small thing because God had put them in the temple garden to be the rulers to be his ambassadors to be his representatives to be priests in this garden sanctuary to rule over the create the creatures the created things and so when this slithery serpent came with his deceptive lying mouth Adam and Eve had the authorities. They should have taken him by the neck, marched him to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a place of judgment in the ancient world. And he had the authority, they had the authority to judge him, but instead they conspired. They conspired with him against God Almighty committing cosmic insurrection. And, and so their relationship with one another was broken. Their relationship with the serpent was broken. Their relationship with creation and the environment was broken. And their relationship with God was broken. You see, church family, we suffer because... We've abused our liberty. Some of our suffering is just flat self-induced. And now we've got to live with our mistakes, and we don't like it. And it's like we've backed our trucks up and dumped all over God, and it's not his fault. It's our fault. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Those who sow to please his flesh will from that flesh reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. See, Randy, that doesn't sound very compassionate. We're not in the emergency room. Okay? I'm not in the hospital room. You think I'm going to share that verse in the emergency room? (laughs) you, You said you wanted sound teaching. This is sound teaching. This is sounding, and, and then we'll, why, why won't God just step in to stop us, you know, and just kind of interrupt it when, when we are about to really do evil? Well, you know what? Sometimes he does, and that's called a miracle, all right? But, let, but let's think about that for just a minute. J.P. Moreland helped me think about this by using an illustration. He said, okay, all right, let's say, let's say starting at um, noon, Ah, let's make it earlier than that. 
11.45, 20 minutes from now. 11.45, let's say that beginning at 11.46, God decides to eradicate all evil with the use of a tool that uh, police officers are trained to use, a taser gun. Let's say that God uses a taser gun to eradicate evil. Taser gun's a very, very powerful tool for compliance, mind you. Yeah, yeah, a half a second, a half a second jolt of electricity, and you are in extreme pain and muscles contract, right? Uh, uh, Two to three seconds, and you're down on the ground. Three seconds or four, you are incapacitated for 15 minutes. So, so let's say that you lie starting at 1146. You get zapped a half a second for lying. Or let's say you're going to rob a bank, right? You, that's a two to three second zap. That's what that is. Well, let's say, heaven forbid, you might want to kill someone. Ah, that's got to be four to five seconds, right? So you've got to get zapped for doing evil. But, but let's not stop there. Because all of us know that actions are precipitated by thoughts, right? So, at 11.46, you get zapped for sinister thoughts, right? Evil deeds, evil thoughts. Oh, but let's not stop there. Because we all know that evil is not just doing wrong, but the failure to do what's right when you have the opportunity, okay? So you fail to forgive. You fail to show mercy. You fail to show kindness, the good you know you ought to do. You fail to do that, you get zapped. You get zapped. Uh, 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 the offering's gonna come by in a little bit. You, uh, okay? We're gonna have the offering at 1148. Okay, yeah, yeah, hey, you get zapped for evil deeds, evil thoughts, and the failure to do. Now, the question is, what kind of a world would that create? What would the world look like under that system? And J.P. Moreland says this, he says that it would be a world of twitchy people, <laughs> pastored by twitchy pastors (laughs) who obey God like cowering, beaten down dogs. Mm, That's what it looked like. That doesn't sound like love to me, does it? See? Some suffering is due to abuse of liberty. It's self-induced We blame God as not his fault. It's our fault. That's why some suffering happens. Suffering also happens due to the natural order of life in this broken, fallen world. Jesus said something interesting about weather patterns in Matthew 5, 45. He said, God causes his son to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Far as I know this summer, the drought hit the Christian farmers as well as the non-Christian farmers, as far as I know. 
far as I know, Hurricane Isaac didn't discriminate between Christians or non-Christians. In my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, years ago, a squall line came in, tornado funnel, came right out of the sky, a direct hit on Memorial Drive United Methodist Church, leveled it, went right back up in the sky. No other church was damaged. How are we to interpret that? Well, I know how the people in Oklahoma interpret it. That's Oklahoma. Home of Tornado Alley. It's just going to happen in this broken, fallen world. Why do planes crash? Well, planes crash because one of the laws of thermodynamics. Things go from bad to worse. Parts wear out. Pilots make mistakes. Bad weather happens. Put it all together and some planes crash. And the only way to get around that would be to ask God to revoke our liberty. And who wants that? Who wants that? Some suffering is self-induced. Some occurs due to the natural order of life in this broken world. And some suffering is due to satanic attacks. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. The apostle Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In the book, When God Doesn't Make Sense, the author tells about a missionary who was returning to his hut one day and got inside the hut and there it was confronted with a large python. Uh, The missionary quickly got his gun, took dead aim, and fired a bullet between that python's eyes. Python began to writhe and thrash about. In fact, the missionary had to go outside to the front yard and from outside could hear furniture being overturned and lamps being broken as this huge snake was in the final throes of death. And that church family describes our enemy, Satan. Because Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, delivered a mortal blow to the head of Satan. And he knows that he's limited. And that's what we learn in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, And then it says, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. And and why? Because he knows his time is short. And he's going to try to cut into as many of us as he can. He's going to try to wreck your life. He's going to try to wreck your marriage. He's going to try to wreck this church because he knows his time is short. And that's why some suffering happens. Some suffering self-induced. Some suffering happens because of the natural order of life in a broken world, and some suffering is due to satanic attacks. The fourth teaching point, probably the most difficult to swallow, because it's simply this. Some suffering exists for reasons God only knows. Now, I just said earlier, Americans love liberty, right? Americans also love their privacy, don't they? 
We have a right to privacy. Question, does God have a right to privacy? The answer is he sure does. He's God. (laughs) You see, and, and we think if we at least could understand the reason for suffering then we'd be at peace with our circumstances. That's what Job thought in the Old Testament. Job chapter 23, verses three through five. If only I knew where to find him, Job says. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I'd find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like saying, God, where are you? Why won't you answer me? That was Job's question in the Old Testament. Job, this righteous man, he was a righteous man and he suffered inexplicably and he he begged God to answer him and God was silent and and Job kept harping away. If I could only, like if I only knew why, if I only knew, God, if you would only explain yourself as if God owed him an explanation. And you know what happens, don't you? In Job chapter 38, God finally appears And he speaks to Job. And to our surprise, um, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, Job, here's the deal. Uh, Satan and I, we're playing one-on-one, and you're the ball. Okay? That's the deal. He doesn't say that, does he? You know what he does? He takes Job to the zoo. He takes him on a tour of his zoo. God shows Job all the zoological wonders. Look at that ostrich. I made that ostrich. Is that the most, is that phenomenal? I did that. I created that. And then he takes him on a tour of the meteorological wonders. Did you know that there's a storehouse for for hail in heaven and there's a storehouse? Did you you know that? I mean, I, I, I know how many drops fell from Hurricane Isaac this weekend. I know that. I made that, Job. It's just, it's like God is in surveying the zoological and meteorological wonders. It's just, it's almost like God is proud of himself of all he can do and his creative wonders and, and he's just amazed by it all and Job sees it all and after surveying the, the, the zoological wonders of, 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 of animals and uh, birds in flight and, and the, the the, the atmospheric conditions and the meteorological wonders. God is just, just, just so wonderful. He's just so pleased with himself, with what he control, can control. And, and afterwards, after he sees it all, it's like he looks down at Job and says, now what is it you wanted? <laughs> and the message is very clear. If Job cannot understand the visible world, how's he ever going to understand the invisible world? And God does something more than just give Job an explanation. He gives Job himself. And if you will not be satisfied with God... Well, you just won't be satisfied. In Job 41, the last creature 
that God shows Job is this, uh, is this dragon-like monster of the sea called Leviathan. Leviathan is this almost mythic creature. Le- Leviathan, Leviathan represents this, this catastrophic disaster that you never want to experience in life, ever. But inevitably, Leviathan just shows up out of nowhere to devour you. Leviathan comes and, and, and shows up and chews you up and spits you out and then you don't even know what's happening and then Leviathan goes on on his merry little way and sooner or later in your life the unforeseeable, the unimaginable happens. Something is your Leviathan and you ask God for an explanation And God is silent. He won't explain it to you. But what he will do is this. It's what he did to Job, and it's what he will do to you. What he will do is at the right time, he will disclose himself to you in a deeper way than you have ever known before. And what you will learn when God discloses himself is this. The Leviathan you so deeply dread is at one and the same time God's rubber ducky. That's what the psalm says. Psalm 104, verses 25 and 26. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. See, your Leviathan is also God's Leviathan. Not only in that he keeps it in his sovereign hand, but also... In his son, Jesus Christ, it mauled him too. You see, that's our message as ambassadors, right? Isn't that our message as ambassadors? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation on the cross. God in Christ was reconciling us to him. See? David Sitzer said to his dad, Dad, do you think mom can see us? That was an important question because uh, when David Sitzer asked that question, he was eight years old and his mother had been tragically killed in a car accident. Yeah. Do you think mom can see us? Is that a head question or a heart question? Yeah, what do you say if you're David's dad? David's dad thought and he said, David... Yeah, I do. I do. I think your mom can see us. Um, 
David said, I just don't see how she can see us because, I mean, she's in heaven and heaven is this happy place. How can she bear to look at us so sad? Head question or heart question? David's dad paused and took a deep breath and said, um, David, I think she is happy in heaven and I think she sees us sad here on earth and, and I think she's still happy because she knows the whole story. She knows how the story ends. And David, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. The Christian response to suffering is Christ's suffering and Christ's resurrection. God knows pain within himself, and God knows joy within himself. And he sees the whole story as one, including how it turns out. And church family, it's a beautiful story. And it's one that he has entrusted us to tell as ambassadors. So that's who you are. We are Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this precious treasure of the gospel and give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to know when it's appropriate to share compassion. And Heavenly Father, prepare us so that we may communicate sound teaching sound teaching to those who want to investigate. And we promise we will give you the glory through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.